Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 305, and today we are talking about books being released on April 6, 2021, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Danica Ellis, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Danica, hello! Hello! How's it going? Good, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. There are a million and two books out today that I want to read. I mean, it's just like a huge spring release day, so... yeah. We have a lot of them to talk about today, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. As usual, it's been beautiful in Maine, and then it snowed last night. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because you just can't—you just can't get used to the spring yet. You have to wait mm-hmm. because it always snows. So I got up this morning, and there was snow all over my truck. I was like, "Yep." So what are you gonna do? <laughs> That's no good. Yeah, I was putting together the new releases. I do the new releases on YouTube for Book Riot. And I was trying to pick my, like, six picks for this week, and I just couldn't do it this week. I had to just throw in, I think, five bonus recommendations, because there are so many today. It's such a good day for books. Mm -hmm. And so we are going to talk about several that we love uh, right after we hear from a sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so my first pick today, I am just floored by this book, and I I don't even know that I'm going to be able to do it justice. It's so fantastic. It's called The Five Wounds. It's by Kirsten Valdez Quaid, uh, who is also the author of the short story collection Nights at the Fiestas, which is also incredible. This is her debut novel, and I don't know why, but I find it so much harder to speak eloquently about a book that that I like than a book that I don't like. Not that I talk about books that I don't like on here, but I do talk about them, you know, to my cats and my friends and in my head. And, and you know, when I don't like something, I'm like, I didn't like the characters. I didn't like the setting. I didn't think the inclusion of vampire raccoons in an ancient Greek setting was necessary. Like, I have all these reasons why I don't like a book. But when I love a book, I'm just, like, tongue-tied. And this is one of those books. This this is like, oh, so good. Like The Rib King. I had such a hard time talking about The Rib King, my other favorite book of the year. You know, and like The Rib King, I think this one is going to be a National Book Award nominee. So we'll have to find out in the fall. But this is a sweeping multi-generational novel, but not multi-generational in that it takes place over many years, but in that it is five generations of a family in New Mexico. It's set, it starts off near the beginning of Holy Week. 
Amadeo is a 33-year-old man who has been chosen by his great Tio to play Jesus this year in this celebration. He will walk with the cross on his back for a mile and then be put up on the cross as part of their celebration. You know, he's whipped, he's he's cut. It's in honor of Jesus and, and everything he went through. And this is a very serious job. What he doesn't know is that his mother begged his great uncle to let him have this role. Um, but he's he's taking this very seriously because he doesn't have a job. He doesn't hold down jobs for very long. He always has these great ideas or he thinks they're great ideas and he gets people to invest in them or, you know, he gets other people to help him with them and then he doesn't follow through or he doesn't show up. Um, he lives with his mother. He has an addiction to alcohol. He's just generally rough around the edges. He's super lazy. He's not speaking to his sister, and he has a teenage daughter who he barely thinks about. Uh, when he was a teen, he got his daughter's mother pregnant and then kind of just stopped returning her calls. So he sees her occasionally, and he kind of likes the time they spend together, but when she's not around, he really doesn't think about her. Until now, he gets home one day, and his 15-year-old daughter, Angel, is sitting on the steps to the home that he lives in with his mother, and she is eight months pregnant. She's 15 years old. She's eight months pregnant. And she shows up because mostly because she wants to see her grandmother because she's had a fight with her mother and she wants to come stay with her grandmother because she knows her father isn't really that interested in her. But Amadeo's mother, Yolanda, is away. And Amadeo is not really happy to see his daughter because, like I said, he doesn't really think about her that much. And all of a sudden, he's trying to be serious and take this role seriously because he thinks that that playing Jesus might turn his life around somehow. And now here's his daughter, his pregnant teenage daughter, to bring the drama, he thinks. Uh, so they kind of have to stay together and live with each other while they wait for Yolanda to return. And she does eventually return, but she has not been on the trip that she had expected to have. And we know that she has news that she needs to share with her family. Uh, meanwhile, Angel's mother, Marissa, we get to hear from her. Uh, she's had terrible past relationships. Uh, she had Angel when she was 15, uh, and she thinks she has a good man now, and she's doing everything she can to hold on to her life, even if it means upsetting her daughter, even if it means driving a wedge between her and her daughter. And then there's Tive, who is the great uncle. He's a deeply religious man, but also a curmudgeon. And he's kind of cut off from his family. He doesn't really want anything to do with other people. You know, he's had a, a lot of tragedy in his life. And then the other, the fifth generation is Connor, who is Angel's baby. She'll have the baby in the course of the book. And, you know, she will struggle to care for him while she's trying to complete her education. This is just a beautiful dysfunctional family novel. I know that is a genre that so many people love, and this one is excellent. Uh, we know with TV, like I said, he's had a lot of tragedy. He lost his son to drug addiction, but he still has no sympathy for other people who are going through the same thing. And right now, um, heroin use is running rampant in their town, and it's affecting so many people. Angel is disappointed in both her parents. She's disappointed that they don't understand what she's going through because they went through the same thing, but they are disappointed in her because they wanted her to learn from what they went through when they had her as a teenager. Uh, Yolanda needs everybody to get it together because she's not always going to be around to fix their messes, and so she's trying to impart some wisdom and get them to realize, like, she's not always going to be there. And Amadeo is just, is he always going to act like a child? He's very selfish and very immature, and is he always going to be like that? You know, it's, it's an incredibly real story of family 
and faith. It's fully drawn. And the characters are complicated. They're so realistic. Sometimes they're a-holes. I mean, they're so real. I want to give content warnings for a mention of illness, terminal illness, a car crash death, substance abuse, an overdose, and sexual assault. Uh, and like I said, Kirsten also wrote Nights at the Fiestas, which came out about six years ago. And some of those stories include a couple of the same characters from this book, but um, you don't have to have read the stories to love this novel, which I hope you will because, oh my goodness, I could talk about it a lot more, but I'm not going to. But it's definitely... Definitely in my top five, if not my top three, for the year. That is The Five Wounds, and it's by Kirsten Valdez Quaid. I think we have a sequel to your Gila Monsters romance, which will be a historical romance with vampire raccoons now. I think that <laughs> needs to happen. For some reason, my brain always goes to like weird animal things when I'm trying to come up with examples. Well, I enjoy it. <laughs> All right. My first pick is Zara Hossein is Here by Sabina Khan. Zara's family has been living in Corpus Christi for 14 years after emigrating from Pakistan. They're still waiting for their green card application to go through, though, which has put them in stasis for many years. She's also the only Muslim going to a mostly Catholic school, which means facing bullying, especially when her friends can't be by her side. She tries to keep her head down and avoid drawing attention to herself. In Social Justice Club, though, she can use her voice and be her authentic self, progressive, Muslim, and proudly bisexual. This book actually uses the word bisexual, which is always nice to see. The club is where she meets Chloe, a white lesbian from a strict Catholic family looking for a place where she can fit in. They quickly hit it off, and between protests, they flirt and start dating. I appreciated how they discuss a little bit about navigating white privilege in interracial relationships. Chloe is supportive, but that doesn't mean she immediately understands what it's like to live as a person of color in the U.S., and she does have to learn and correct herself. Do be prepared to get hungry reading this. There is so much food on the page, a lot more than I was expecting, especially Pakistani males, and they left me drooling. When the story begins, Zara is experiencing Islamophobic harassment from the star football player at her school, but she has a strong network of friends and family that supports her. The harassment escalates, though, and it takes the story in a darker and more complicated direction than I was expecting. It's difficult to discuss this story without some mild spoilers, because an event about halfway through this book is what the entire plot hinges on. It's also something I think you should be prepared for before reading. So I'm going to give a mild spoiler warning. Feel free to skip ahead about two minutes. Zara continues to be harassed at school by Tyler, which escalates to him and his friends spray painting a racist message on Zara's home in the middle of the night. Zara's mild-mannered father catches him and goes to Tyler's father's house to confront him. There, Tyler's father shoots him, claiming self-defense and charging him with trespassing. I wanted to mention the specifics because although the book begins with racist harassment, it's not immediately obvious that it will involve a racist hate crime or gun violence. And from that point on, Zara and her family are wholly concentrated on her father's recovery. He's in a medically induced coma. To make matters even worse, if he is charged with trespassing, it could jeopardize their green card status. Meanwhile, her mother, understandably, does not feel like their family is safe in the country anymore. She requires constant check-ins from Zara and panics when she doesn't receive a text when Zara goes to the library. She moved here for a better life, but she no longer believes that this is a better life. 
Zara is completely unmoored. The idea of being forced to move back to Pakistan, a place she hasn't lived since she was three, is hard to even consider. There's also the fact that she would be forced back into the closet and she might not be able to marry who she loves. That's not even taking into account leaving her home, her friends, her family, her girlfriend. She wants to be somewhere that she can be her whole self in safety, a queer Muslim Pakistani woman. I appreciated the complexity that this story brought to the subject of immigration. It discussed the wait time and the challenges to completing the application process, but also the luck involved. This chance encounter could erase all her family's years of being ideal citizens, including her father's work as a beloved pediatrician. An author's note explains that the author's own family's immigration process was derailed by a clerical error, making them have to abandon the possibility entirely. Added to that is the layer of Zara's family wondering, is this worth it? Do I want to be in a country where so many people don't want me here? Even if most of the people they encounter are supportive, it just takes one armed racist or one well-connected bigot to dismantle their lives. This is a book that doesn't provide any easy answers. It acknowledges that these are thorny, deeply flawed choices to have to make. Zara wants to stay and fight to make things better, but her mother is tired of fighting, and both of those are fair. I also appreciated the discussion around anger in this book. Zara has no time for Tyler's remorse, while her friends want her to sympathize. She is firm that he should know better than to be a racist jerk, no matter who his father is. This is a great addition to books that start conversations about immigration in the U.S. with the added layer of being an out queer immigrant from a country that is not accepting of queer people. I highly recommend it. And that's Zara Hossein is Here by Sabina Khan. All right. Now I'm going to bring us down even further with this <laughs> slim, dark novel that I absolutely loved. It is The Night Always Comes by Willie Vlauten. I have to say, the more I think about it, the more disappointed I am that I didn't talk more about Good Neighbors by Sarah Langan a few months ago. It's the darkest, most disturbing novel I've probably ever read. But the writing was so fantastic, and I loved it, and I think about it all the time. But I was like, this is, this is too much to talk about on the show. Like, I'll just give it a little shout out and move on. And I also, when I first read this book, The Night Always Comes, I thought, this is really dark and depressing, and I'm not going to talk about it. But I love it. And you know what? I'm just going to go for it, because I loved this book. And people read all kinds of things. So... I want to tell you this is difficult. I'm going to talk about some very dark things in this story, but it is excellent. It's, so, it's an incredibly compelling novel, and I find it to be so sensitive to its main character. It's set in Portland, Oregon, and it's a slim character-driven novel with a lot of dialogue. It's about Lynette. She's 30 years old. She lives with her mother and her brother. Her brother is older, but he's about eight years old as far as maturity level, because he has special needs. And she's always had to take care of him. Their father left them when Lynette was young. He didn't like having to, you know, always take care of everybody. And he took off. And her mother has never really gotten over it. Uh, Lynette herself had a lot of, of problems. She was quite rebellious as a teen. She got in a lot of trouble. And even though She's now working a steady job, and she's taking care of her brother. Her mother really never lets her forget it. She, she's always sort of poking and prodding at her about her past. Uh, Lynette now works at a bakery, 
And she secretly babysits her brother there. She she needs someone to watch him. And so she brings him and puts him in the back where the owners won't see him and like kind of checks on him all the time. But a bakery doesn't pay what she needs. And so she's also a sex worker at night. And she's saving up because her and her mother have just been given this great opportunity to purchase the house they live in. It's not a great house, but the neighborhood, all the houses around them are selling quickly. And they've lived there for a very long time. So the owner is going to cut them this deal. And they've decided they're going to pool their resources, they're going to pool their money, and they're going to buy this house. And it's going to be great. They're going to actually own something. You know, like nobody in their family owns anything. And at the beginning of this book, Lynette gets home and discovers that her mother has gone back on her side of the deal. She no longer wants to purchase the house with Lynette. And it's so heartbreaking when Lynette realizes that she had this great opportunity and not only is it not going to happen, but her mother doesn't want to live with her anymore is basically what she's saying. So Lynette decides she's going to find the money another way. And that leads her to commit a crime and takes her to several dangerous locations over the course of the evening. It would be like an incredible indie film, this book, because it's just like that one night, that one last job, but it's like one big chance to turn everything around. But it kind of descends into violence and chaos. It's dark and sad and bad things happen. And the content warnings for this book are mentions of child abuse and exploitation, sexual assault, statutory rape, chemical use and abuse, violence, and suicide. But it is so beautifully written. My heart ached for Lynette. It just ached. It's a very quick read. For some reason, while I was reading it, I kept remembering the play Night Mother. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that. It was like Sissy Spacek and and Bancroft, I think. It was on HBO all the time when I was a kid. But the dialogue between her, Lynette and her mother reminded me of that book, um, how she just kind of harps on Lynette all the time. But it's, oh, it's such a, a beautiful book. It's a realistic look at poverty and mental illness and substance abuse and where they fall, you know, on the American dream that everyone is trying to achieve. It is called The Night Always Comes and it's by Willie Vloughton. She's got two books in a row about the American dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not quite working. My next pick is An Indian Among Los Indígenas, a native travel memoir by Ursula Pike. I'm so sorry for my Spanish. This is Ursula Pike's memoir of her time as an indigenous woman in the Peace Corps stationed in Bolivia in the 90s. She wrote this book to have some kind of resource out there about the questions and difficulties of being indigenous and serving in a predominantly indigenous country because she didn't have anything to turn to. Ursula desperately wanted to join the Peace Corps, and after being rejected multiple times, she was finally allowed the opportunity to volunteer in Bolivia. This is a recounting of her time there, but more importantly, of her questions and concerns while volunteering. An ongoing theme in this narrative is questioning the Peace Corps and whether what they were doing was useful. Was it just a publicity mission for the U.S. to boost their international image? Regardless of her skepticism, they were her only option to travel and serve because they were the only ones to pay volunteers and she didn't have enough money to do anything else. They were there to help Bolivians, but they relied on Bolivians for everything. Food, water, laundry, housing, translating, etc. So was it worth the money they were paying her and the cost of flying out and training volunteers? These are the kind of questions that Ursula just kept coming back to. She became disillusioned with the whole framing of the project, that other countries should imitate the U.S. to improve. She also saw connections between the U.S.'s actions abroad and within her own community. 
Both painted their communities as one-dimensional tragedies in need of an outsider to swoop in and save them. They were both pressured to develop by abandoning traditional practices. Ursula went to Bolivia to find community with other indigenous people. Instead, she found herself being read as a white American, switching from the marginalized minority to a privileged minority, but not fitting in in either. She craved recognition from Bolivians, wanting them to recognize that she was different from the white volunteers. She struggled to adjust to the sudden power shift. She was used to being one of the least powerful people in any room when in the U.S., but she was comparatively wealthy and powerful in Bolivia. She realized that she had more in common with out-of-touch white American volunteers than with Bolivians. Ursula wasn't sure how to deal with being in this position, being able to dole out charity. She felt sorry for these poor kids at the school she volunteered at, but when she was a poor kid, she hated people feeling sorry for her. She comes to realize that although she came to Bolivia to connect with her indigeneity, she misses her indigenous community at home. There are a few aspects of this book that might fairly turn people off from reading it, so I want to warn about that. For one, she ends up being in a dark place in Bolivia, sinking into depression, and she does attempt suicide, which is graphically described. Also, while struggling, she begins an affair with a Bolivian man who turns out to be married, and it becomes an all-consuming, unhealthy relationship. So if you don't want to read about adultery, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this one. She also discusses Bolivians deciding whether or not to keep their traditional dress, the monetary pressures to give it up, and the racism within Bolivia directed at the Cholitas, or Indians from the countryside. Ursula faces microaggressions and racist comments from fellow volunteers as well. Obviously, a lot of time has passed since she left in 1996, and there's an epilogue about what has changed in Bolivia politically. She notes, though, that there has been little change in how people talk about Westerners traveling to the developing world to help. I thought this was a fascinating look at volunteerism from an indigenous perspective, which isn't something that I've seen before. And that's An Indian Among Los Indígenas, a native travel memoir by Ursula Pike. Okay, I am now going to talk about another debut novel that everyone is excited about. It's finally here. It is Call Baby by Morgan Jerkins. Jerkins most recently wrote Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots, came out last fall. And a couple of years before that, she wrote This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, and Feminist in White America. This is her debut novel, and it's Call Baby, C-A-U-L, and I'm going to explain to you what that is because you need to know uh, to understand the book. It is the, a call in this case is the amniotic membrane enclosing a fetus. And so before I start talking about this book, I do want to give content warnings up front in case you want to skip ahead because this book talks a lot and is centered a lot around pregnancy, miscarriage, and baby death. So skip ahead a few minutes if that's something that you don't want to listen to right now. This novel is about several women living in Harlem. Uh, at the beginning of the novel, we meet Layla. She is a wife, a uh, and she wants to be a mother, but she has had several miscarriages. Uh, she lives in Harlem with her husband, who is an architect. He's, he's gone often. And she finally discovers that she's pregnant, and she doesn't want to tell him because she's had so many miscarriages that she's worried something's going to happen. So she kind of hides it from her for a long time, but some nosy neighbors notice that she is pregnant again. They also know that she has lost her babies because 
they would ask her, you know, how she was, and she would say she was pregnant. And then the next time they saw her, of course, she was devastated. Uh, so they tell her that if she wants to keep this baby, she needs to go visit the Melikon women, who are this powerful family in Harlem that can help her with her baby. They will give her a piece of call, and the power of that call will make everything okay. And at, the fir- at first she's like, this is, you know, it's a rumor, and I don't really believe in this. But then the more she thinks about it, she's like, well, it couldn't hurt. But in the end, the deal falls through. She doesn't end up getting this piece of call. And even worse, her baby is born still. And so she goes from thinking like it's, it doesn't have anything to do with it to thinking this is what happened because she couldn't get this piece of call. Meanwhile, her niece, who is in college, she finds herself pregnant and ends up giving her baby to the Melikon women to raise. And the baby grows up wondering why she feels like she doesn't fit in with this family who is raising her. And her mother, the college student, she is now a lawyer, and she's looking to settle a grudge that she has with the Millicon women because things did not go well there. It's a fantastic first novel based around the use of the call in historically African-Caribbean folk magic. Uh, It covers gentrification, generational trauma, racism. The Millicons are revered in their neighborhood and almost feared for their supposed abilities, but they're also shunned because... They mostly give their calls to white clientele. They charge white women exorbitant amounts of money for a piece of their own body, and their black neighbors look down on them for this. It's also a book about motherhood and pregnancy and loss and how women treat each other in different stages of their lives. I loved the writing. It's told in several different points of view. Uh, Sometimes that happens in the same chapter, and I was looking over uh, Goodreads reviews after I read this, and I know that a couple of people found that to be a little confusing, so I just wanted to give you a heads up about that uh, up front, but I just thought the book was excellent and imaginative, and I can't wait to see what she does next. It's Call Baby by Morgan Jerkins. And now, before Danica tells us about her next pick, we're going to hear from another sponsor. All right, Danica, what do you have for us? Yes, my next pick is I'm a Wild Seed, my graphic memoir on queerness and decolonizing the world by Sharon Lee De La Cruz. So this is a short graphic memoir. It's just under 100 pages. And because it's so short, I don't want to spend too long talking about this because I don't want to spoil it. It's about the author's exploration of her identity and her coming into queerness, but it's also about her relationship to her racial identity and decolonizing gender and sexuality. It often reminded me of an in-depth essay more than a graphic memoir, which is not a complaint. It's packed full of memes, diagrams, and other visuals that I'm more familiar with from the internet than from seeing them in books. Dela Cruz shares not only her own personal story, but also the history and context of the queer community that she's learned along the way. It's through this background that she can better understand her own identity, and she is clearly eager to share these with the reader, which I really enjoyed. She also discussed how her freedom is tied to Black trans women's lives, and that no one is free until the most vulnerable of us are. She comes out at 29 because she spends her early years trying to understand her racial and cultural identity as someone who is Dominican, Puerto Rican, and Black. She spends a lot of her life trying to find where she fit in. She explains that because it was so difficult to understand and come to terms with that, she had no time or space to question her sexual identity or gender. This is a quick read, but it's also insightful and thought-provoking. My only complaint is that I would have gladly read a version of this book 
twice or three times as long. And that's I'm a Wild Seed by Sharon Lee De La Cruz. I don't know why, but when you said I'm a wild seed, I heard it as like I'm a little teapot in my head. <laughs> I'm a wild. I don't know. That's just what happened. <laughs> so for my last pick today, I'm actually going to mention a few more titles that I read and loved because there's just so many of them. And there are, I mean, I have four pages of titles that are coming out today. And there are so many more that I want to read. But there are a few that I would love to mention, starting with our very own Tears of Price. Her first book, Pride and Premeditation, a Jane Austen murder mystery, is out today. Hooray, tears! And this imagines Pride and Prejudice as a whodunit. And I believe she's already finished the second book in this series, so there should be a second one soon. But congratulations to her. The fourth and final book in the Arusha series by Roshani Chokshi is out today. I love that series. It's adorable. It's a great middle grade fantasy series if you're looking to get into some more. Cynthia Dupree Sweeney's new book, Good Company, is out today. She is the author of The Nest, which I know a bunch of you read several years ago. Uh, This one starts out when a woman finds her husband's wedding ring hidden in an envelope after he had told her many years ago that he had lost it. And there's some complications around how it ended up there. Also out is Broken in the Best Possible Way by Jenny Lawson, who you may know and love as the bloggist. She wrote Let's Pretend This Never Happened and Furiously Happy, and she is so, so funny and also amazingly honest and smart uh, and talks about her dealings with depression and mental illness. I actually am very fortunate. I have a tweet. She quoted one of my tweets in her book uh, in the chapter called Awkwarding. If you might remember me mentioning that I once said the man liquor bong list instead of the man booker long list. And she thought that was funny and she asked if she could use it for her book. So um, that is like the highlight of my life. Uh, There's also The Drowning Kind by Jennifer McMahon. Uh, She writes spooky thrillers. This one is about a woman whose sister dies. And when she goes through her sister's things, she finds out that her sister was investigating their family and its dark past. Jeff Vandermeer has a new book out today. It's called Hummingbird Salamander, and it's a dark, speculative, environmental thriller about endangered species. And it's super weird because that's Jeff Vandermeer. He's awesome. Helen Oyayemi, speaking of weird, has a new novel out today called Pieces, P-E-A-C-E-S. Oyayemi also wrote White is for Witching and Gingerbread. She does these great sort of fairy tale novels. Mr. Fox, I loved Mr. Fox. Stephen Hall, who wrote The Raw Shark Texts, which is one of my favorite books from many years ago, he has a new novel out today, which is super exciting because The Raw Shark Texts came out 14 years ago. His new book is called Maxwell's Demon, which is actually a physics thing. Maxwell's Demon, this physicist came up with this theory, which kind of reminds me of Schrodinger's cat. But this is about a man whose famous father dies and his protege, his father's protege disappears. And all of a sudden, he starts thinking he's getting calls from his dad and letters from this protege, and he has to figure it out. But he also talks a lot about physics. There's a whole big section about entropy and how important it is to the world and how it works, which is not something I thought that I wanted to read about, but turns out it is. It was just really fascinating. Maureen Johnson has a book out today, Cruella, Hello, Cruel Heart, which is about Cruella de Vil, but it's not what the upcoming movie is based on. This is about Cruella when she's a teenager and she starts to get into trouble. And I have not read these, but I thought I would mention them just in case you are interested. Two wonderful musicians have memoirs out today. Brandy Carlisle, 
Hers is called Broken Horses, a Memoir. And Ricky Lee Jones also has one out today called Last Chance Texaco, Chronicles of an American Troubadour. So that was a lot of information, a lot of titles I just threw at your brain and tried to get them to stick. Uh, so if they didn't for some reason, you can go back to the show notes and you will find them all there. Getting your tweet in a Jenny Lawson book is a great claim to fame. That's quite the accomplishment. <laughs> People have been reading the galleys and they keep being like, did you know this tweet? I was like, I know, I can't believe it anymore than you can. Like, <laughs> like I thought at first when I got the direct message from her that it was some kind of prank because I was like, what? <laughs> she wants to quote my tweet? What? But it's true and it's so exciting. I love the idea of being the emblematic example of awkwarding. That's, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so you want. All right, so I have my last pick here, and that's Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet by Lakin Zay Kemp. I listened to the audiobook of this, which I highly recommend. There are two narrators for the two point-of-view characters. Penelope Prado thrives in her father's taqueria-turned-bar nachos tacos. From the way she keeps everyone in line, you'd have no idea that she deals with overwhelming anxiety. She wouldn't let her teenage guy coworkers, including her brothers, see her sweat, so she steps outside whenever she needs to take a breather so she doesn't have a full-blown panic attack. That's nothing compared to the anxiety she feels trying to go to school, though. Every day, she drives to campus and tries to convince herself to go through the doors today. She hasn't stepped foot in class for a whole semester, and she hasn't told her parents about it who are paying for it. The truth is that she doesn't want to go to class. She is training to be a nurse, but she wants nothing less than to follow in her mother's footsteps. She sees how exhausted she is at the end of the day and the emotional toll it takes. What she really wants is to bake, even to open her own bakery, but her parents would never approve. They want something better for her. They don't want her to deal with the same money problems that they have. Of course, part of why Penn loves the restaurant and why they're always struggling financially is because Penn's father takes care of the whole community. Anytime anyone needs some extra money, they can work for Nacho's Tacos for a while. He wants to keep everyone safe, especially with two big threats to their community, ICE and JP. JP is a loan shark who has no qualms in taking down anyone standing in the way of his profit. He is well-connected with the police, and he is happy to call in anyone undocumented who gets behind on their payments. Penn's father tries to prevent the desperation that makes people turn to JP, whether that's by giving away food or by hiring people. When Penn admits to her parents that she hasn't been going to school, though, they fire her from the restaurant and give her an ultimatum. Go to class or leave home. Penn leaves, suddenly scrambling for an apartment and a new job and resentful of her slacker brother getting a promotion while she can no longer step foot in the restaurant. The newest Nachos Tacos hire is Xander. He is saving up to pay for a private investigator to find his dad. He's lived with his grandfather ever since his mother sent him away, but he never got closure after his dad left. Penn and Xander are both dealing with pain that they can't admit to, and they unexpectedly find themselves able to confide in each other. While this book deals with family, community, and finding yourself, the romance is also a big element. I loved Penn's complex relationship with her father. He is the hero of their community, holding everything together, but he's not personally affectionate. Penn has to figure out how he shows affection, and she begins to see him as the complicated, flawed, compassionate person that he is by the end of the book. 
I also appreciated the depiction of anxiety, though, of course, everyone experiences it differently. Penn manages her anxiety by doing something scary every day, which doesn't always work out for her, but it helps her feel like she has some level of control in her life. Along with this being a great family story, a bittersweet story about community, and a supportive romance, it is also heavy on the food writing. Again, don't try to read this book while hungry. Those are both my YA recommendations this time. You should have snacks. You will have so many food cravings. And again, that's Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet by Lakin Zay Kemp. All right. I feel like we had an excellent selection today. I mean, I feel like that way every week, but <laughs> you know, I'm still like reeling. I'm like floating from reading The Five Wounds. Like, I just love this novel so much. But I have to move on. What are you <laughs> going to read next? I am going to read Tell No Tales, Pirates of the Southern Seas by Sam Meggs and Kendra Wells. This is a middle grade LGBTQ pirate comic. It's based on the real life pirate Anne Bonny, and it looks like just a really fun read. What are you going to read? I am so excited to say that I finally got my hands on a copy of You Sexy Thing by Kat Rambo, which I have mentioned 1,100 times in like the eight months since I read about it. It is a space opera that is being called Farscape meets the Great British Bake Off. And I said, gimme, gimme, gimme. Uh, And I've been saying that every day for like eight months. And I finally got it. So as soon as we're done here, I'm going to go read that because I cannot wait. I am so excited. I could not be more excited if I swallowed a cat and broke out in kittens. I am so excited for this book. I'm almost too excited to read it now. Yeah, that's always a problem. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that happens to me, mm-hmm. but me too. <laughs> it's it's going to be great. So that is it for us today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. If you want to talk to us, you can drop us a line at allthebooks at bookriot.com. You can find us online. Danica hangs out on Twitter at lesbrary, which is L-E-S-B-R-A-R-Y. I mostly hang out on Instagram at Franzen Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And thank you, thank you to the so many of you that have done this over the last few weeks. We greatly appreciate it. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, I have to go read the new Cat Rambo. So you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, you can check us out on bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. I think I'm going to request that every time I say the word stable, there's like a horse noise, like a horse whinny. Because <laughs> I really want there to be one every time I say it, and there isn't, and it's very disappointing. Yeah, they definitely should be. <laughs> but that's it for us. And in the meantime, happy Happy reading. reading.